0: Welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. Produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media, and made possible through advertising by Sanofi. I'm Patrick James Lynch, your host and resident hemophilia patient, and this is episode 19 of the Global Hemophilia Report. Today's topic telemedicine for hemophilia care. What do we gain, and what do we lose? Indeed, telemedicine was a buzzword during the COVID-19 pandemic. But does it serve our post-pandemic world? Let's find out. And thanks for listening.
1: Sanofi seeks to break barriers for people with hemophilia through groundbreaking science so they can live beyond the limitations of their condition. Learn more about Sanofi's commitment at sanofihemophilia.com.
0: Fernando wore his Sunday clothes today. He was a bit nervous, a bit anxious as he sat on his hospital bed, and he was hopeful that his condition would get better after his appointment. He was going to have his first telemedicine appointment today. Fernando is 18 and lives with hemophilia. That doesn't stop him from doing anything and everything on his college campus though. From classes to dance clubs to soccer stadiums, Fernando is wherever his friends are. This first year at college seemed simply special. He loved the campus, his dorm, his roommates, just everything. Really, everything. And then one Friday, things got a bit out of hand. Fernando got into a fight with his college friend, Arturo. As they punched each other and other friends tried to stop, things escalated. And well, both Fernando and Arturo ended up in the hospital. Arturo with broken bones and Fernando with a bleed. The last two weeks had been difficult for Fernando. He was recovering well, but his doctor wanted to consult a specialist. The hematologist he had in mind was in Michigan, and Fernando couldn't possibly travel to the United States, especially in this condition. So a telemedicine appointment was set up. Telemedicine has indeed made healthcare accessible. Patients like Fernando, who live far away from a hemophilia specialist, now have a hope to recover faster or at the very least, of getting expert input, even if that expert lives very far away. Hemophilia has a long-standing tradition of remote management in the form of home-based care, which started a few decades ago. In the last 10 years, the number of hand devices, such as mobile phones, has increased exponentially. Increase in the use of internet, computers, and data programs have helped in increasing the use of telemedicine. And then as was mentioned earlier, COVID-19 gave a whole new energy to the world of telemedicine. So today we will discuss various technological platforms for telemedicine, the rise and evolution of telehealth and telemedicine, the type and quality of care that can be expected, some of the challenges related to telemedicine, and what all this means for the future of hemophilia healthcare delivery. For this discussion, I have with me a panel of experts and let's start out with their introductions.
2: Thank you for having me on this audio cast. It's very exciting that we're beginning to talk about telemedicine. I am Roshni Kulkarni. I'm a professor and director emerita of the Michigan State University Center for Bleeding and Clotting Disorders and have been in this position for over 37 years. And my introduction to telemedicine was in 1998 when it was as a part of our outreach. We did both care at the center as well as care for patients who lived at a distance.
3: Hi, this is Savita Rangarajan. I'm a consultant hematologist. I work in the UK and I have been a hematologist at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital. And then I've moved down to the Southwest and I'm at Southampton University as an associate professor of clinical hematology for the last four years. And I also practice in India And I have set up a clinical trials unit focusing on hemophilia. And I'm hoping that I can contribute to this telehealth because I
4: have worked or rather taken advice from Roshni before. My name is Michelle Whitcup. I'm a DNP, a doctorate of nursing practice, nurse practitioner, and have been practicing in the inherited bleeding disorder field since the early 2000s, over 20 years now. I started in the Northern Regional Bleeding Disorder Center in Traverse City, Michigan as a nurse practitioner and worked with Roshni there. She was my pediatrician that I partnered with and eventually left in 2017 to go to the National Hemophilia Foundation as the head of research and ultimately president of research strategy. I'm now a consultant back to the National Hemophilia Foundation and work on their national research blueprint trying to develop research priorities that we can move research forward as an inherited bleeding disorder community
5: my name is anette von regalski i am a professor of clinical medicine at the university of california san diego i am heading the Adult Haemophilia and Thrombosis Treatment Center and for the last 10 years have developed a poignant interest in point-of-care ultrasound for the evaluation of hemophilic joint disease and that comes in various flavors in terms of ad hoc diagnosis of pain-related issues that may relate to bleeding or not. In other words, is there a bleed in the joint that needs treatment versus another etiology that requires a different approach and also establishing a protocol for long-term follow-up of joint health in hemophilia. We call it the CHAID protocol. It's been developed here at the university where I work, but in essence, in my daily practice, it's more or less, is there a joint bleed or not? And really having a readily available tool like a handheld point of care ultrasound tool to apply directly to a question related to a joint problem in a patient who comes and sees us.
0: Some new voices to the Global Hemophilia Report, along with some familiar ones. And I thank you all for joining us. Telemedicine. We dive in right after this quick word from Sanofi.
1: Hemophilia A and B are both bleeding disorders. However, they have their own unique pathologies and clinical features, which makes them inherently different. Preclinical studies have shown that after infusion, individuals have three times more factor IX in the extravascular space than they do in the bloodstream. Due to the distinct behavior of factor IX, multiple pharmacokinetic or PK parameters should be considered when assessing the treatment and management of hemophilia B. So, what does this mean for people with hemophilia? Visit the bigger picture in hemeb.com to see how a broader view of PK may influence hemophilia B treatment. That's the bigger picture in HEMB.com. This site is intended for US HCPs only.
0: Welcome back. Now, panelists, can you tell us a bit about telehealth platforms and how they affect accessibility to healthcare? To start, Dr. Kilcarny, can you help clarify some terminology? We hear about telemedicine. We also hear terms like telehealth and digital health. So before we go too far down the road, can you help distinguish these terms for us?
2: So I think over the years, we have the explosion of telemedicine, telehealth, and digital health has made us come back to the table and say, what are we doing? What is this thing that we do? So the NIH defines telehealth as any modality that supports health care. And that includes education, whether it is education for the physician, education for the patient, or community health education, public health surveillance, whatever it is. That supports health care telemedicine is a billable clinical service where you serve the patient you look at the patient you make a diagnosis you or your team can be providing those services to the patient for example in a hemophilia or a bleeding disorder patient you just do a history and physical like you were sitting in front of the patient and doing a history and you need some assistance with the physical examination digital health on the other hand is an all encompassing terminology so if you look at if you look at it like a bubble digital health is the big bubble that includes electronic medical records remote patient monitoring for blood pressure weight height things like that and it also includes telehealth which then has a smaller bubble of telemedicine. So you can see it's a bubble within a bubble. So the whole thing comes together. The remote patient monitoring, which is now becoming more and more popular, is a part of digital health. And so all these three terminologies define the entire scope of digital health. Anything to do with technology assisted care of a patient or a society or a health department or education or anything can come under this umbrella is the umbrella term the digital health is the umbrella term telehealth is the medical term then the telemedicine is the patient definable service that you provide so telehealth is what most of us understand the education part of it the things but televisit or telemedicine is the terminology that we use with patients because they seem to understand that's a virtual visit that's the it's a virtual outreach it's a virtual visit rather than seeing the healthcare provider be it a nurse or physician or whatever it is in person so instead of a face to face in person visit this is a virtual visit over a computer
3: I have, a, I have to add a bit to it because I think in hemophilia, digital health or the aspect of having patient data on, a, on an app and them adding to the telemedicine becomes even more important. So I think there is a little aspect of digital health associated with telemedicine because when they have a bleed, if you have that data recorded, it makes the telemedicine visit much more productive,
0: and you don't have to go through each of the bleeds, etc. Are these types of digital platforms accessible and available for anyone to use? So we can talk about
2: pre-COVID and post-COVID days. In the pre-COVID days, at least in the United States and perhaps in the world, the platforms were restricted in the sense if you were at a university, the university bought the platform, which was pretty expensive. For example, at my university, two or three departments shared a common platform, and our platform did not interact with the platform in Michelle's. Michelle had something called Polycom, and we had something called Video, and the two didn't talk to each other, and there were all these barriers. And I think these barriers are coming down, in my opinion, that we can do World Zoom right now, what we are doing, This platform is interactive, interoperable. That means platforms can talk to each other and all that. But there's still a digital divide. After the COVID pandemic happened, the government, during the COVID pandemic, I should say the government became unrestricted. That means you could access a patient over their phone, their cell phone and all that. And the HIPAA regulations, which were so intensely followed, went out of the window. And now the government is trying to again put back restrictions. Who can do telemedicine? Who can't do telemedicine? And what about those people who don't have these video platforms? Where are they in that? And that encompasses a a big group of people who live very remotely, uh, who are migrant, workers or whatever it is who don't have access to phones and certain populations like with our thing Amish population they do not believe in electricity they do not believe in any of these electronic things so it is still difficult so distance is still a problem with a lot of people not having access to a digital platform culture and cultural beliefs are still an issue where many people do not believe in in having such an access and clearly government regulations which there again has changed quite a bit but i think uh, restrictions imposed by government is a problem and i'm happy to say that biden recently announced that he's going to have digital He's going to over try to overcome the digital divide in the United States, at least by having free internet and for people. And I think that is what is needed. I think,
3: yes, the HIPAA regulations that Roshni talked about, I think it was a big thing in the past. But I think now patients understand post-COVID that many of these, you know, unnecessary barriers or necessary barriers whichever way you are or where you see it becomes very important and for me when i talk about global i mean me sitting in the uk with all my expertise etc and whether i can provide the same kind of expertise via the via zoom via teams via whatever platform that i use with another junior doctor sitting with the patients maybe or the patients themselves and providing them support help and advice i think is an amazing thing that can be done and actually i am doing most of it so i think that's where the difference comes where you know, patients are able to access and she talks and Roshni talks about remote areas and India. There are many areas where you don't have speciality doctors. So this makes a big difference into what can be done and what cannot be done. And I think giving the right advice is important in eventually. So I think whether it's a platform that is made for hemophilia or whether you just use one of these Zoom type calls is irrelevant, I think. In India, I think the internet use is far more than most countries. That is a big advantage. And most of the patients do have a smartphone and internet ability and data. So actually, it's pretty good. So most of them are able to converse quite easily.
0: Dr. Wickhop, what are some of the evolutions of the use of telemedicine that you've seen in the hemophilia community on the heels of the pandemic? So
4: I haven't been practicing in a clinic for a few years, but in talking to my colleagues, it was interesting to me that prior to the pandemic, there was provider resistance, I felt. There were a lot of barriers Some of them were what Roshni had commented on, and others were just that providers weren't willing to take that step to do telehealth. But then with the pandemic, many of them were forced into doing it. This was something they just had to do in order to keep up. And when they were forced to do it, they realized it wasn't as bad as what they thought it was going to be. And it was a perfect alternative. Now, it might not be perfect in the manner of being able to see, touch, and feel, but it still was for those people who had to travel long distances or who couldn't get in, who you have fear of, transmission of disease, all of those types of things. They realized that this was an acceptable alternative. And now as we move to that next phase, we realize that there are many options. There's many opportunities. We don't have to be as rigid as we were pre-pandemic. And we have the opportunity to see people in person. If it doesn't work for some reason, we still can keep in touch in some way via telemedicine and not lose touch like we may have before and this i think allows us to maintain continuity in a way that we maybe didn't have prior to the pandemic where we can keep in touch with people we can keep updated on them and get maybe more information than we did by just sending them something in the mail and then getting it having it get lost not returned And to Savita's point, sometimes it's just a phone call, but that is considered telemedicine also. It doesn't have to be a visual platform. It can be all types of electronic communication that we're taking into consideration, the HIPAA issues, the privacy, and maintaining contact with our patients. And that's what's really important that they're getting the care they need in the place that they need at the time that they need in a manner that is meeting their needs as well as
0: ours. That's great. Along with traditional telehealth platforms, patient contact over the telephone or Zoom or Teams are all considered televisits. The pandemic has changed some definitions for the better, at least from an accessibility standpoint. Dr. Von Dragalski, what can you tell us about some of the exciting imagery technology that's being used to maximize the value of remote meetings with patients?
5: So we do work with patients remotely with televisits, yet have not incorporated tele yet in our clinical practice, although we have done a pilot study in about 10 patients or so, and I can talk about the results and what that means in a moment, but for the moment all kinds of telehealth visits center around regular patient care, including comprehensive care, physical therapy, and all of that. But certainly, tele-ultrasound is something to consider for the future. So at the moment, what we are using increasingly for point-of-care ultrasound and promoting or encouraging to use in terms of equipment is these new handheld devices. So these are ultrasound transducers that plug into iPhones, iPads, Androids, are all pre-programmed, for instance, for musculoskeletal ultrasound, truly user-friendly, no more quote-unquote nobology. It is very self-explanatory, and everyone can te- theoretically deal with that, including perhaps patients. So that brought down the cost of ultrasound equipment and the availability I think in clinics and even in the hospital and in a white white coat pocket dramatically. So we are talking about a transducer now being anything from 2000 to $5,000 perhaps as opposed to a big ultrasound machine for 50 or $100,000 which is very restrictive for clinics especially if there might be not that much billing involved. So, also, these little handheld devices have tele-ultrasound capacity for remote areas, or in our case, maybe even for patients. And so, this is where our little study comes in, and I can explain it in a moment. But in essence, the patient would have, or anyone remote, has their little handheld device that plugs into a tablet and there's literally a button to push to go on telehealth, the image accuracy without any major recall needed was like almost 100% and so was image quality. And it was truly easy to do and is something that one could consider to involve down the line into hemophilia joint healthcare. This means a patient would need a small handheld device at home. Someone has to pay for it, perhaps insurance, and it needs a dedicated provider at the other end who would be willing to any time during the day take a call, takes 10 or 15 minutes to determine is there a joint bleed or not, or what's going on in the joint and guide the patient through the ultrasound. So I think it's
2: a very exciting times we live in that that expansion of this digital technology. And now we hear about AI and things like that. And and I don't know where this is going, but uh, clearly if it helps people with any kind of uh, medical disorders, that'll be the best service we can give these people.
4: Which, Roshni, you can think of drones as a form of digital health. Exactly. Yeah, it's so cool.
2: They can deliver products, they can deliver like blood transfusion, can deliver factor.
3: Or take or get black or get your blood back to the centers in order to investigate further. There's one aspect of day-to-day clinical care and then there's the other aspect of clinical trials which to make it easier and accessible for patients everywhere and anywhere. Especially when you have rare, diso- rare diseases, you're not gonna get them all clustered in one area. So they will be traveling from different places. So to have, rather than have multiple sites, have one site and use telemedicine, telehealth,
4: would be ideal. <laughs> I was just gonna say Roshmi and I did research studies together. And I actually had patients who were on clinical trials who lived three hours away And whenever I needed to do an update rather than have the mom bring her baby three hours to me and then three hours back, we would connect. And this was approved via the clinical trial. We would connect via Zoom and I would go through everything with her and do my meeting with her via Zoom. And it worked out so much better. And I think then the adherence is improved also because then they know they don't have to, it it takes away one of the burdens of the research study. So that worked out beautifully with all the way from the informed consent through to the very end.
0: As we discuss how telehealth and telemedicine could make things like clinical trials more accessible for patients, which I might add I find terribly exciting, it also sounds like we're speaking about a decentralized model of care, Dr. Rangarajan, could you talk a little bit about the decentralized model of care?
3: I think decentralized models are taking off everywhere. And in fact, many a times there are even nurse practitioners going out to the patients to even take, collect blood, et cetera, to get the test back. So I think decentralized models are, are here to stay and And I think, even in countries like India, that's going to be the next phase of changing how clinical trials work. And certainly, that's something, again, certainly worth using that model in order to make sure that you have maximum participation
2: from the very patients who need it. This probably maximum participation. we have always somehow I feel we have excluded women and girls from clinical trials for whatever reason not defining them better not listening to them about their conditions they have to be home cooking this that you can't expect them to come to a center on day 2 day 8 whatever it is and give blood but i think going to the patient using these digital technologies to enroll them onto the trial actually i think brings a different perspective to the clinical trials we are, it's just not all male-driven all the time.
0: Dr. Kulkarni, I understand you worked on a grant project in Michigan that was exploring ways of expanding care for patients with bleeding disorders. Can you share some of what you learned about care for patients in remote areas through that program?
2: Yes, sure. I think we had a grant from the American Thrombosis Hemostasis Network, NHPCCC from HRSA, that's the National Hemophilia Program Coordinating Center to expand. And I think Michelle was a part of our grant. And the other place was Houghton Hancock, which is very remote. It's even further away than Marquette, Michigan. And Colleen is a pediatrician who practices there along with a bunch of other pediatricians. And there's a big, huge, actually, family of von Willebrand's disease there. PI1 deficiency, we recently had two PI1 deficient women deliver in Marquette. And we, our adult hematologists saw them by telemedicine and gave the pregnancy recommendations and things like that, and, and that was a challenge. And so Colleen sees these patients and we ended up essentially working with her, so much so she was very familiar with DDAVP trial. This is the Desmopressin trial to increase levels of factor eight and von Willebrand factor. So so she started with our help doing these trials. She knew exactly what to do, how much to give and how to follow them up. So that was a big thing. And now, and she is very good about looking for the Byten score for hypermobility. This is for Ehlers-Danlos. So before I even come into the room, she says, Roshni, look at this girl. She can put her thumb like this and her elbow like this, and she can bend the knees right away. And Colleen herself has very good experience with uh, Ehlers-Danlos, so she's able to direct these. And it has been fun to teach her and actually exchange literature with her. And she came down to one of the Athen meeting and gave her perspective as a clinician that the biggest thing it does is gets rid of loneliness for a practitioner in remote areas and also makes them feel they are giving state of the art care to their constituents and that we are there to support them if they have any questions or anything they can call us and video conference audio conference or whatever it is with us whenever they need to see us so now we do a monthly telemedicine with her group every month, and this was just not related to bleeding disorders, but she has other hematologic disorders, ITP, um, other anemias, things like that. So it has expanded quite a bit uh, with her and her partners.
3: I certainly can, in terms of uh, where where I think we have improved, or rather, I have improved the patient care. And that, I think, is in a surgical setting where, you know, not only having set out the the surgical plans, you actually are with the patient and the physician locally in order to go through individually everything. And not only, really, again, as Roshni said, telemedicine means a lot of things, which includes if my nurse in back in India were to take a video of a of the surgery itself or some of the bleeding that is happening and sending it to me via, you know, to pictures to know what exactly or how much bleed there has been in order for me to to decide the course of action. So I I think we have managed inhibitor patients with large pseudotumors and managed surgery. And I was remotely giving advice and we did it very well. So I think those are the kind of things that if we can work together, it, it makes a big difference to the patients. Clearly, not only the physician, but also the surgeons, because they have never seen such surgery. So for them to be confident enough to do it, I think it was really something, it was really amazing to have the patient recover and the outcome was ex- excellent.
0: We'll be right back. Preclinical
1: studies have shown that after infusion, individuals have three times more factor IX in the extravascular space than they do in the bloodstream. Due to this distinct behavior, trough alone may not provide a full picture of factor IX activity and should be one of multiple ways we measure factor in the body. It's time to look at the bigger picture, to see why a more complete assessment of pharmacokinetic or PK parameters is important. Visit the bigger picture in HemeB.com to learn how multiple PK parameters can play a role in hemophilia B treatment and management. That's the bigger picture in HEMB.com. This site is intended for US HCPs only.
0: Welcome back. Telehealth, as we have discussed, certainly has its upside. But are there any risks involved in using telehealth?
2: So I think as physicians, since our medical school days, we have been trained to put our hands on the patients, the healing hands or whatever you may call it. So there is a certain amount of skepticism that one still has when you see a patient on the Internet. What are you missing? What are what is the home environment like or what are the expressions or things like that so just to give you an example we had a patient mother of a child with severe hemophilia who was abused and lived in a motorhome and in as much as i would seen that i just could not get that feeling even though our social worker everybody saw it that she was bruised and she's a carrier so all these things i don't know whether i would have done a better job being in person or rather than 500 miles away. I do not know that, but it often leaves me that, I hope I have covered everything. Can you trust the other pair of eyes that sees the patient? That's the bottom line. Most of the time you can, but I think the risk is you may be missing something. I I don't know, but I think, Remember, most people think that when you see patients by telemedicine from remote areas, you'll see a lot of patients. You don't. The population isn't that much and bleeding disorders are rare. So you may see one or two patients, but the cost savings is tremendous. Instead of the patients taking days, patient and family taking days off of work and coming down and things like that, to just see them and at least give them the expert advice i think it's worth it
3: one of the risks that i see is that many a times when we see the patient in person we put everything on paper and we have all the data recorded so whether we we do a similar thing and how do we transmit it to the center that's something that we need to work on and want to make sure that the data is there so that the next patient next person who sees the patient has an ability to see everything now That's one. And secondly, I think it's very important to have trusted lieutenants across the patch in order to, as Roshni said, you have a trusted pair of eyes and hands in order to make sure that you are doing the right things for the patients. But otherwise, I don't see this as a major, there's no major gaffe, I think, that would occur.
4: I think to just add on to what they're saying, I think it's just body language. There's body language that you can't pick up on a 2D that you can on a 3D when you're seeing that person in person. When they're in the waiting room, when they're visiting with other people, there's a body language that you don't pick up on a screen. And to Roshni's point, when somebody has issues that they're trying to hide, or they want to share with you but don't know how, they can hide it better when they're on a screen and they're going through because you don't have that time maybe for small talk and things like that that you would in an office. And to Savita's point, other eyes on them, even if it is just the MA who's taking that person back and doing their vitals. So, it's, I think, the body language and seeing that person as a whole person, you don't have that advantage in a telemedicine visit. And while I do believe wholeheartedly and passionately that telemedicine is extremely important as an addition to inherited bleeding disorder care, the treatment center care. I don't think that it should be all-inclusive and that should be the only way a person is seen. They should at some point be seen physically by by their providers in the treatment center because there's just a different dimension that an in-person visit allows. So I agree with
2: Michelle. I think that hybrid services, part-time technology, telemedicine at times and in-person visits at times is Mm -hmm. perhaps the best solution,
0: yeah. As we begin to wrap up, one area that we have not addressed is the economics. How do the economics of telemedicine work? Is it feasible for patients? Is it sustainable for the healthcare system? And will people continue to use telemedicine now that the pandemic is over?
5: Yes, so the insurance, first of all, I. While it is, we have shown that it is feasible to do tele-ultrasound very easily, even for patients who are somewhat older and not as technology savvy because the technology is so easy and user-friendly. There is no pathway forward yet in terms of billing, in terms of who would, for instance, buy a device and put it into a patient's home internet connectivity some patients might live in areas where it is difficult to establish an internet connectivity so while this is all feasible now i think one has to decide how to go forward on a very large scale and of course one could also think about in healthcare hubs having a provider, be it a nurse practitioner or PA or even nurses who could perform this and a patient coming to that hub. But then again, what are the arrangements in terms of billing? How would that healthcare hub be, for instance, be connected to our university? I think it is absolutely not worked out and needs a lot of work to come. And then we also don't know what are the real benefits? And I think that's the research to be done. How can telehealth really advance patient care? What are outcome measures, patient satisfaction measures, prompt diagnosis versus delay? I think these are all completely open questions in my view. So we looked at the healthcare costs of a patient coming down
2: from the various telemedicine sites to the center, but with Michigan State University, whether they were flying, whether they were driving. And that included the cost not only for the patient, but the caregiver, because the parents, in many cases, or some caregiver has to come down. And also lodging costs because of the distance. In many cases, you have to be overnight. So it has hotel and meals and this and that. And what was surprising, what we found was that the cost of coming down, whether by plane or by uh, travel by car, was close to $1,500 a visit. And imagine a patient who has to come down many times, just uh, multiplies over a year. Whereas the cost of going to a local healthcare provider and having pretty similar services, but being seen by a telemedicine visit was close to anywhere from $40 to $70. So that was like a no brainer that this was such a big difference in in cost. Now, a lot of physicians were worried about whether they would get paid equivalently by a telemedicine visit as opposed to an in-person visit. There is a code and we looked at that at our center And there was payment. We had to apply that code. It's called GT code. It stands for general technology. And once that is applied, then the payments were very similar to the time you spent and things like that.
5: Yeah, so since I do not have experience with tele-ultrasound making a huge difference because this was just a study, a pilot study, to even show that patients can utilize this in order to do home diagnoses. And so there is no breaking story that someone's life was saved Or That is just the feasibility. However, how I got started even thinking about this is that there are now recent publications that point-of-care tele-ultrasound is used out in the field by EMRs or other healthcare professionals to save lives in trauma and in the ambulance because not everyone is trained. So that I think even lay people, there was a recent publication, even lay people, not really trained in ultrasound could, using that technology, use this at a trauma site and thereby save lives. And I think that is the most compelling story to, yes, if these people can do this out there in the field in a, in, in, in a trauma setting, we can apply that to hemophilia.
4: To your point, our workforce is growing smaller and smaller and our specialists those who have that expert knowledge we don't have as many as we may have had in the past this is a wonderful opportunity for us to have whether it's an advanced practice provider whether it is a primary care physician whomever out there in those geographically challenged areas northern michigan the upper peninsula of michigan montana all of those areas india where you might have patients who are experiencing a bleeding disorder issue, but you don't have that expertise and the specialty. This is an opportunity for that expertise to be available to them electronically, telemedicine, artificial intelligence. You, I, should, I want to step back there. Artificial intelligence will never replace Savita and Roshni that they will never be able to replace them. So I think that telemedicine is really going to be always on the forefront and it's going to expand being able to put the Roshnis and Savitas of the world in the office or in the living room of these people who live distantly. And then also to educate and assist the um, people who are there locally to provide that care and help them to take care of those people distantly. That's what I appreciated, and that's what I see for the future. So I think uh, the one of the
2: biggest things about evidence-based medicine has been in papers which have addressed adherence to treatment. Clearly, when you have ongoing relationship via televisits, with your patients, it has shown improved adherence, decreased medication errors. And I think we really still need to do a lot more in terms of clinical trials to see whether that is true or not, whether telemedicine really improves adherence, improves care, and overall improves quality of life. I think with the remote patient monitoring, I think of hemophilia and we think about joint range of motion that was the preliminary thing we did but i think monitoring a patient at home their movements how they're moving what they're eating drinking how they're climbing stairs is perhaps a more practical way of looking at range of motion rather than just bringing them to an office and examining them with a the scale and a thing and and then trying to see the differences between the two telemedicine is here to stay there's no doubt about
0: it That's a great way to look at the future of health and telemedicine. And we know that future is coming sooner than we think because of things like the Connect for Health Act. Earlier this summer, the bipartisan Connect for Health Act was introduced in the United States. This act will make certain Medicare telehealth flexibilities permanent. The legislation will permanently eliminate the originating site and geographic restrictions. Without those restrictions, all providers who are eligible to bill Medicaid can bill for telehealth. This will permanently allow health centers and rural health clinics to deliver telehealth services. The act will eliminate the six-month in-person visit requirement for telemental health services. Additionally, the legislation will permanently allow for the waiver of telehealth restrictions during public health emergencies. The legislation also includes new program integrity provisions as well so that authorities can provide an oversight to telehealth practices. Along with other chronic diseases, these changes in telehealth will help the hemophilia community. Just like telehealth helped our friend Fernando from the top of the episode. Recall that our friend Fernando got into a fight and had a bleed. Fernando's telemedicine appointment went well. The hematologist talked to Fernando and his doctor. She made some changes to his medications and advised another week of rest. She was not particularly happy about the fight, of course, but she was glad that Fernando participates in all of his college activities and is looking forward to doing so again soon. Well, Fernando, we all hope that you graduate without any additional fights. We heard a lot of valuable information pertaining to digital health and telemedicine from our esteemed panel including thoughts on how the continued evolution of digital health technologies can help reduce equity gaps and expand specialized access to patients, especially in rural and remote areas. Telehealth and the overall decentralized model of care stand to benefit enrollment in clinical trials, including by expanding the representation of patients on a trial so that ensuing data is more representative of an entire population. And that brings us to the end of this episode of the Global Hemophilia Report. Thank you to our esteemed panel and advisors, and thank you, as always, to our senior medical advisor, Dr. Donna D. McKelly. Thank you to Sanofi, our featured advertiser, for making this show possible, and thank you to everybody at Bloodstream Media and Believe Limited. Please subscribe to the Global Hemophilia Report wherever you listen, and share this episode with friends or colleagues who you think would benefit from it. For links to any of our previous 18 Global Hemophilia Report episodes, visit GlobalHemophiliaReport.com and stay tuned for our next monthly podcast. My name is Patrick James Lynch, and until next time.
1: Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global hemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers and supporting the community at SanofiHemophilia.com.